Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, so Jesus' surety. I, I was super bummed that Austin wasn't going to be here today because I, the title of the message the Lord gave me ties into his business with surety bonds. And, and I was really excited for him to get to hear how what he does for a living actually links to our king as our surety. So that being said, we're going we're gonna to dive in. We're going to finish chapter 7. And as we finish chapter 7, I just want you guys to realize that there's, there's a couple of things through Hebrews and with Jesus as our surety that we have confidence in him at the rapture from 1 John 2, 28, the verse below the verse we usually go over every day in church. We have confidence when Jesus comes to call us home because of his surety and what he did for us. We have complete confidence in it. So there's a link here with the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach you everything, and when he's teaching you everything, then you get the confidence at his appearing that you too will get a glorified, resurrected body because Jesus did, and he's our surety. So there's a link there between the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection, which happens at the rapture, so Hebrews is going to teach us everything as we continue to go through and we finish uh, chapter 7 here. Okay, on the outline, uh, this is a new and better priestly covenant. So Jesus is our high priest. And like we covered last time, because of the order and the precedent set with Melchizedek, Jesus is our high priest. And so he was a foreshadow, and we covered that in a lot of detail last time, that Jesus was, Melchizedek was the foreshadowing for our higher, better priesthood in Christ. And what did that mean last time? Well, it means you have one that is interceding on your behalf constantly. You have one that is needed a sacrifice once and for all only, not continually, because he paid it. He could, and he alone could redeem you because his sacrifice was worthy. And how do you know it's worthy? Well, because he was resurrected. And when he was resurrected, the linen cloth and the napkin, all of that was a receipt that God accepted his sacrifice through the resurrection. So that's just incredible, the kind of high priest that we have in Jesus. As we get into this, too, I want you to realize through Hebrews that Five warnings to us as the believer to not drift, not drift away from Jesus, but to cling to him. Remember, that was the first warning all the way back in Hebrews 2. But the reason why God structured this entire book for us in Hebrews and these warnings is because there is a kingdom to be set up. And we're, I'm actually going to do a special message on this when we finish Hebrews. I've been, I've been studying and thinking about this a lot lately. But the kingdom, it's the central theme of the entire Bible. 
The first words spoken chronologically in the Bible, the first quote is from Isaiah 14. And it's in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 when we went back and studied Let There Be War, part one. That first quote in the entire Bible chronologically is Satan declaring war on the kingdom. So it starts off with, remember Isaiah 14, I will set my throne upon the sides of the north. I will be like the most high. It's that quote from Satan as an attack on the kingdom. And it's hard for us in the United States to wrap our head around what does it mean to have a king because we've never had, that's not the government that we live under here. And so a lot of us can't, it's hard to relate with physically what that means for our lives. But there's a kingdom coming and the Bible starts chronologically with an attack on that kingdom and it ends with Jesus ruling and reigning in that kingdom. And everything in between is him working to set up the people, a sinless, redeemed set of people that love him in an unashamed fashion to serve him in the kingdom. That's what it's all about. And you see this in 1 Corinthians 15. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. That's at the end of the millennium. So this is looking not the rapture, not the seven-year tribulation, not when Jesus sets up the kingdom at the beginning of the millennium. It's looking at the thousand years are past at the end of the millennium. That's what this verse is all about because the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And if you remember in Revelation 19 when we studied the millennium, there's death during the millennium. There's people, if you die before the age of 100, you died as a very young man. There's longevity restored. So this is talking about the end. Is death. For if you put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And that's the goal. He's working to build this kingdom, this kingdom at the end of the millennium. So, with Hebrews, just as a reminder, you have something that you can lose, and it's not your salvation if you're in Christ. Praise God. Hallelujah. But like Jesus said in Revelation 3.11, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. So Jesus, you have something laid up for you in heaven right now to usher into the millennium, to worship the king with, to throw back at his feet that can be lost. And it's not your salvation. It's your, it's your crown. Okay, like we said, chapter 7 opened with continuing to build that link between Jesus' priesthood and that foreshadowed by Melchizedek all the way back in Genesis 14. So if you remember from verse 1 last time, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, remember that's Jeru, Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So chapter 7, we went through a comparison of the Levitical priesthood, which was continuous. It was needed daily. You had to be ordained in it through your genealogy by who your father was compared to Jesus' priesthood which was made and sworn by God himself under oath. And his sacrifice was once and for all. It, did ne it never had to take place again. 
So what he did on the cross was once and for all and for all. So it's for everyone. The Levitical priesthood was national. It was only for Israelites, if you remember. It was only for the people of the sons of Jacob and Abraham, that seed. And the last part of chapter 7 here is going to provide more characteristics of Jesus' priesthood and, again, the surety we have in Jesus, the surety, which is the guarantee. So it's the guarantee that he will redeem us. So the Levitical priesthood was based on the law. It was always outwardly practiced. The new priesthood with Jesus is based on inward power of the living God. And the new priesthood is inwardly focused, yielding a victorious life. So remember, the, the law and the practice of the Levites, it was always outwardly, and it was to try to cover up outwardly what they were doing, the sin they were creating or, or acting out. This new priesthood with Jesus, it's inwardly focused because you have the Holy Spirit, the living God inside of you, and you have a victorious life as a result. And so the Levitical priests were ordained based on lineage, which resulted in some very corrupt priests. There were a lot of priests, if you remember in the Old Testament, that were not fit for that role. But it just was based on who your father was, if you're of the tribe of Levi. And Jesus, the just one, was made a priest here in Hebrews 7.16. Remember, we closed with this verse last time. Who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but rather the power of of an endless life. So for Jesus, his case rested on the power of an endless life. Because of his resurrection, he lives forever and became our high priest. So his priesthood is set on the fact that he was resurrected, he always has been, he always will be, and he's sitting in the heavens right now. He's sitting in the heavens as your priest to intercede on our behalf, which is just incredible. Okay, so verse 17. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so Jesus, or the Father, once again, is hitting this theme of Jesus being like Melchizedek in his priesthood. The Father's testifying on behalf of our king. He's testifying once again. And again, it's a quote from Psalms 110, verse 4. Just get the picture how many times the Lord, the Holy Spirit, has quoted Psalms 110 in this chapter and in the book of Hebrews, speaking of our Lord, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the two key points to note from the Lord, Jesus' priesthood is eternal, and this was a prophecy yet to be fulfilled as it was made while under the Mosaic law. So think about that. All the way back in Psalms 110 you have the Levitical law going on, the Mosaic law, and yet the Lord is saying you'll be a priest forever after Melchizedek. It's a prophecy all the way back in Psalms speaking of what Jesus will be on our behalf. Okay, in verse 18, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. So the Greek word for disannulling it literally means abolition to abolish, put away, or rejecting. So there's a putting away of the law. Okay, now remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5. I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. So he literally is fulfilling, he's disannulling the need for those continual sacrifices. 
in the law. He's disannulling it. The word's only used twice in the Greek New Testament, here and in Hebrews 9.26. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So that's the only two places. To put away is how it's translated in verse 26 there in chapter 9. So the law could not impart strength or justification. It only pointed to the need for it. Remember, the law points to the need for justification. It, all it does is it's like, it's like a mirror. It shows you the needs you have and how dirty you are in your life. It's the need you're looking. It's a reflection of your need for a Savior, one that can fulfill it. So Jesus abolished the commandment of the law due to its unprofitableness and weakness. That's a hard thing for the Jews to hear around Think about this, the temple's still standing, but yet the Messiah came and was crucified. And now they're saying, the Lord's saying, the law was unprofitable and weak. It could not do anything for you. There was no life in the law. It was there to show you your need for a savior. And that's where they missed it. That's where the Jewish people, the Israelites missed it. And thus the priesthood after the law had to be abolished as well. So that because that priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, was set up to only serve that law at that time, and Jesus put away the law, abolished it, fulfilled it, the priesthood that served it also had to be put away. So that's why we have such a high priest now. So since the law has been disannulled, it's, been clearly, it's clearly been put away and abolished by the God who established it in the first place. So Jesus could not be our high priest if the law was still in effect because he was not from the tribe of Levi. We kind of hit on that last time, that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He was a king, the king line, not from the tribe of Levi. And so because of that, because he's a new type of priest, our high priest, the tribe that served that law from Levi had to be set aside. It was fulfilled that requirement is no longer needed. So the Lord is stating once again that the law could not perfect anything. It could only point us to our need for a savior and the truth of our desperation for redemption. And you see this in Romans 3 verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's the knowledge of it, not, not the solution for it. So that's the key, the key difference. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid, in Romans 7, 7. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So the Holy Spirit is, is giving you a lens that if it wasn't for this law, you would have never realized everything you were doing was so abominable to the Lord. And so because you know that now, you need from Romans 8, the law of the spirit to conquer that and to take that away from you. So it's the law, the law has been fulfilled by our king. In verse 19 here in chapter seven, for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. So the law is the stark reality of the righteousness required by the holy God. You know, a lot of Christians, I hear this all the time, 
I'm trying to get through the Bible right now and read it chronologically, and I am struggling with Leviticus. You know, why am I reading this? Why in the world do I, as a modern-day believer, as a New Testament member of the body of Christ, need to read about these 790 rules and what you do with a dove and how you wring its head if it's this? And what is that for? And my answer to all of them is very simple every time. It's so you can learn what it means to be holy. That's what God requires. And when you read it through the lens as a believer that I could never, as hard as I wanted, fulfill what the book of Leviticus required. Never. You could never do it. They tried for a long time. They tried, and they could not do it. But praise God, you can have holiness attributed to you because someone did all of that on your behalf. And that is, that is worth celebrating. So the law does not draw you near to God. It shows you what it takes to get to God. That's all the law does. It shows you what does it take for you to enter the Holy of Holies. And when you realize what it takes, you will stop trying to do it on your own because you can just simply attribute what Jesus did to you and have full access to the throne room at any time. Only Jesus could fulfill the law and then appropriate his righteousness to you. Remember, we covered this in Revelation. Holiness is the one attribute of God that you can't grow in. You have to just accept it from him. You know, love, being loving, doing things for others, giving, being patient, being a good teacher, all these things, these are attributes of Jesus that you can grow in. Holiness, you just attribute it once and it's there. You get it and you get it completely from him because he paid it all on the cross. If you allow him, you've got to allow him to attribute it to your life. And that's part of the key too. People run and flee from Jesus because they're trying to flee accountability. And because of that, they miss out on attributing the absolute unmerited forgiveness that we all get when we attribute that to our lives in Jesus. Only he can appropriate his righteousness to you. So his love draws us near and his righteousness allows us to stay near. So think about that. His action, remember love is not an emotion, love is an action. And so his love, what he did on our behalf for dying on the cross, that action draws you near. And then his righteousness, when it's appropriated to you, allows you to stay there in the Holy of Holies at the feet of the king. Look at Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We covered this a while back. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So because of our high priest, you, when you attribute that holiness and that righteousness, can run into the throne room. You can come boldly into the throne, the throne room of grace. So verse 20 here in chapter 7. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, by him that said unto him, the Lord swear. Now go and search in Blue Letter Bible sometime and find every reference of where the Lord swears something. It's, it's a very fruitful study. The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the Lord continues to, die, to drive that point home 
that the Levitical priesthood was made without an oath. It was based on your lineage, but both Melchizedek and Jesus's priesthoods were made by divine oath, not from who your bloodline was through. So everything God establishes by an oath becomes absolute and unchangeable. And that's why everything that he establishes by an oath, the world and Satan attack everything. What it, who's the one that established marriage? God did, all the way back in the beginning. And what is the, the whole movement in our nation about right now? It's an attack on the church. Oh, not the church, I'm sorry, the marriage, the marriage covenant, right? It's God established this covenant, we've got to tear it apart. God told Abraham, I'm going to give you the land from the river Euphrates to the river Nile in Egypt. And that covenant, that land grant has been with Abraham ever since Genesis 15. And what does the world do? Tear it apart. We've got to piece apart the land. Israel doesn't belong there. You even heard Russia a few months ago say, hey, Israel, you don't have right to the Golan Heights. That's not your land. Well, according to God, it is their land. And so what is, what's the enemy trying to do? Tear it apart. Every single covenant that God establishes, the enemy wants to completely tear apart and rip up. And so it's important to note that those different covenants and oaths all through the scripture. Because if you do a deep study on it, you're going to find every one of those the world is trying to tear apart. So it's also important that you make an oath. You as a, as a person, as a divinely created eternal being that you make an oath. Look at Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. So vowing unto the Lord. You do that when you get married. You make a vow. For just as one example, to the Lord. So it's important that you stick to that vow that you've made before the king. Deuteronomy 6.13, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. Deuteronomy 10.20, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. Him shalt thou serve and to him shalt thou cleave and swear by his name. It's interesting how when you swear by God's name, look at Deuteronomy 10.20, it's linked to you cleaving to him. And remember we talked about that with the first warning all the way back in Hebrews 2, the danger of drifting it's when you're not cleaving to him. You've let go for some reason, and it's starting to dr just drift ever so slightly. Don't forget that you swore an oath. You took on the name of the king from Exodus. Don't take the name of thy Lord, thy God, in vain. That's an oath. Take his name and cleave to him. So when you run and cleave to Jesus, there's only one name by which you're saved, and there's only one name by which you can walk in total and complete freedom in this life. And that name is Jesus, which is why it's so important to cleave to him. So in verse 22, here in chapter 7, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. So here it is. So if you ever see billboards around the city or anything for, for bell bonds, bondsmen, you know, things like that, surety bonds, the Lord's using this very intentionally, a surety of a better testament. The word translated as a of a sponsor, much like a bondsman. So it's used as a security for a debt. Now, if you're not familiar with this concept in the industry, what happens is, let's say, for example, the government wants to fund a new school to build, and they hire you as a general contractor to go build that school. 
Well, they will make you take a bond out on that project. So say it's a $20 million project. And let's say you're halfway into it. Well, your company goes belly up. Well, the taxpayers just wasted $10 million. The bond kicks in to pay the rest, to finish the project, to finish what was started. And so a surety bond, it's a guarantee that what you've been commissioned to do will be paid in full. Okay, that's the connection. And that's why Jesus is our surety because he's the guarantee that anything you do will be paid in full. Anything, because all of your sins were in the future when he died on the cross, right? Everything. So if you've sinned this week, Jesus was your surety 2,000 years ago almost. If you sinned last week, he's still your surety. If you sin tomorrow, he's your surety still. He's paid it all. And so he is our guarantee of paid in full, which is why on the cross he said to telestai. It's paid in full because he was the surety of anything that you would do in your life. And praise God for that. He was made a surety bond for a debt and a contractual obligation that we could never satisfy. So you were in a, con in a contract. You owed a debt. You were like a slave on an auction block, and you could never get off of it on your own. And Jesus stepped in and said, hey, I'll, I'll pay that for him. I'll do that. I'm the guarantee. And then the guarantee, the step further that you have, the guarantee of a resurrected body is because you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit from Ephesians. So because you're sealed with the Holy Spirit after Jesus paid that debt, you're anointed and sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's the guarantee of a resurrected body. He calls it as an earnest deposit, just like when you buy a home, when you put down earnest money. It's your guarantee that you're going to take that property. So that's pretty cool. So as a result of his surety, our debt's been paid and our access to a better testament has been secured. And that's, that is what is so cool. Now, the idea of a surety, this is pretty neat. The idea of a surety, it's first used in God's word when Judah proposes that he be made a surety for his brothers in Egypt. So if you remember the story, there's a famine in Israel. Jacob's sons go down to Egypt because Joseph's been sold into slavery. He's down in Egypt. He finds favor through the Lord through interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh. He sets up the seven years of plenty, and he saves 20%, a fifth part, every, every harvest. And because of that, they have seven years of plenty when the famine strikes. And Israel is suffering. There's a deep famine in the land. So they hear of grain and rice and, and wheat and all this stuff in Egypt. So Jacob sends his sons to go down and to get food for their family. And they come down, and you remember the whole saga. Joseph, he can't reveal himself to them. He's in this room crying. He hides himself at dinner to conceal his identity. And they're all sitting at dinner, and he wants to meet Jacob, his dad. He wants to see his dad again. And he tells them, okay, if, you, if you've got to leave Benjamin here, the son of, Benjamin means the son of my right hand, you've got to leave Benjamin here, and all of you go back and get your dad, and, and then we'll make this right. Well, Judah steps in and says, hey, let me be the one to stay. And this is in Genesis 43. And Judah said unto Israel, his father, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. 
I will be surety for him. So remember, Judah went, all the brothers went back to Israel to get Benjamin to bring him back. And they're going to bring him back. And then Judah's going to stay and take his place. I will be surety for him. There's that word again, surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. And so this is the first place in the Bible this word and this concept show up. And remember, we talked about the law of first mention. Where does love first show up in the whole Bible? It shows up when Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac, he lo- the son whom thou lovest. And of course, that links to the father sacrificing his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, the surety starred in the tribe of Judah, and his name means praise. Judah's name means praise. And she conceived again and bare a son. This is where you get this from, Genesis 29, verse 35. And bare a son and said, and now will I praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah and left bearing. So remember, you can always get the name of the child and what it means. Most of the time, the mother will tell you in the scripture because I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. His name means praise. Our surety resides in, and the obligations can only mean bet by the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's where it's first established, all the way back in Egypt in Genesis 43. Now, I heard a, you all have heard me mention this guy's name before, but Robin Bullock is a prophet that I I enjoy listening to, and he gets some really cool things out of the word of God. He took this concept a step further and shared, when you're in the valley, when you're in times of trouble, you take this concept and you let praise take your place. So when you're in it and you're taking everything, it's kind of why James said, count it all joy when you suffer trials and tribulations. Well, how do you count it joy? Well, you praise the most high God for it. And when you do that, there's a concept. And I have actually experienced this in my life before. Um, I never put the two together until I heard him mention this. But there's a concept that when you praise the Father, when you praise Jesus through the midst of that trial, man, it takes your place in it. And that praise takes that burden and just takes it off of you. And it's replaced with the praising, the hallelujahs, kind of like we sung this morning in worship. I raise a hallelujah. When you're in a valley, when you're in a dark place, let praise take your place through that because God will walk through it for you and just take you up And man, he'll carry you through it. And that praise takes all the grief and the burden. But our surety is in the line of the tribe of Judah. Amen, that is amazing. Verse 23, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. The Levitical priests died and had to continually be replaced. <laughs> Remember, they only served from the age of 25 to 50, so they had a pretty short time of service for the king. But Jesus' priesthood is unchangeable because he doesn't die. He doesn't need anyone to replace him. That's what the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is saying here in Hebrews. In the Greek, this word, it carries the meaning that it's not liable to pass to his successor. Okay, so if you were of the tribe of Levi and you were serving, then you had to pass that priestly duty onto your son. It was liable to pass on. 
Well, here, this word of unchangeable means it cannot be passed on. Jesus can't pass it to anyone. There's nobody else that could carry it. Frankly, there's nobody else that could bear that burden. Only he could. Because he had no predecessor and he'll have no successor. And he always has been and always will be. And he is the king of, of kings and our high priest. In verse 25, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So this word here, uttermost, it means completely, perfectly, or utterly. So he's able to save them, all of us. He's able to save us completely with complete perfection. And it's only used one other spot in the Greek New Testament, this word, the uttermost. So these words are meant to exclude absolutely nothing. These words, these words exclude nothing. He's able to save you despite anything you've ever done in your life. He is able to save you. There is nothing that he can't save you out of or from. And that is incredible. There's nothing that Jesus cannot save you from, but you must come to God by and only through him. From John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. It doesn't say some can get around it. You know, some can try a different way, and they might be successful. It says no man. No man that's ever lived can come to the Father except through him. It's even how Abraham was saved. Abraham was saved by righteousness according to his faith. He, his faith was imputed to him as righteousness. It's the same way that we're saved. So it always has to go through him, always, through Jesus. Romans eight thirty four. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So what does it mean to make intercession? I think it was two weeks ago now that my wife shared that dream of, of our children on the cliff and the sharks at the bottom and intercessory prayer was the cutting off of the tail of the enemy. So it was still there. It could still get them, but it wasn't mobile anymore. It, and that's what intercession does. Intercession goes to war on behalf of who you are interceding for. Remember, God wanted to absolutely wipe out the children of Israel, but Moses stood in the gap. Remember, the Lord said, move over, Moses. Let me just kill them all, and I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to start over with you, and we're going to get this right the first time. And Moses stands in the gap. Lord, what will the people of the earth say? You know, you took them out of Egypt by a strong hand to be your people, and you're going to bring them in the wilderness and just wipe them off the face of the earth? You know, what will the earth think? They'll think you're just some corrupt, genocidal God that doesn't stay true to your promise to your people. You know, there's a really neat example of Moses doing that. That happens also in the New Testament. Paul does that a lot of times for people. But intercessory prayer is so vital, and you especially the dads in this room, you have spiritual authority over your children. So when you pray for them, it is the heavy artillery in the heights of heaven going to war on behalf of your children. There's a lot of, a lot of men that can change the trajectory of your children's lives just by prayer. 
All you have to do is pray and make time to do that. And that is incredible. So don't take your role as an intercessor for granted. And same with the women, the wives in the room, the mothers in the room. You have spiritual authority over your kids. And, and it's even more powerful when you and your husband are in agreement in praying for your kids in that regard. So verse 26, for such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. It's hard to imagine that. You know, when you look, at the Bible talks about three different heavens. There's the first heaven, which is the atmosphere you see when you walk outside in the daylight, the sun, the, the blue sky, the clouds. There's the second heaven the Bible talks about, which is beyond the atmospheric level of our earth, right? You're up into outer space. You see that at night. The third heaven that the Bible speaks about is where the throne of God sits. It's the heavenly heavens, the heavens where we get to go when you pass away from this body and this earth. And he's made higher than that, than the heaven of heavens. Jesus is made higher than that. And at some point, as we learned in Revelation 21, he's going to just roll all of that back. The entire universe, he's going to roll up like a scroll and just get rid of it and make a new heavens and a new earth. And that is going to be incredible. We get to watch him do that if you are in him. Just like the angels in Job cheered when he created the heavens and the earth the first time, we get to cheer when he creates it the second time. And that's going to be the most amazing show. It, you're, it'll, you can't even imagine it. I cannot wait to get there and do that. But Jesus was and is pure and clean in every way. His moral purity is a contrast to the ritualistic purity of the Levitical system. So remember, the Levitical system was purity through rituals. Jesus' purity is because of his moral purity. It's inward, it's inward purity. And we can only have inward purity because of him. He's absolutely spotless, sinless, guiltless, and yet took our place willingly. He could have at any time, like he says, I could call legions of angels and just stop this right now, but he chose not to for us. In 1 John 2, 2, verse 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So he fulfilled it all. In verse 27, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. It's only once. It's only once. And there are some heresies in the church. There have been for the last 1,500 plus years that you need to crucify Jesus again if you sin. That, that is total blasphemous. Blasphemy. If he has to die again, then it wasn't complete the first time. And it was complete. He did it all once and for all. It's paid in full. So don't, don't let people try to sell you that, that bill of goods. The Levitical priests, oh, we didn't finish that verse. For, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for he did once when he offered up himself. The Levitical priests had to continually offer sacrifices for sins because they could never fully purge it. That's why it had to be continual all the time. They had to first offer sacrifices for themselves, then they could offer them up for the people. And Jesus did not offer any for himself. And that's the contrast the Holy Spirit's making here. He was the offering. 
once and for all. There was no, hey, let me get clean first, and then I'll die on the cross for all of you. It was purity, as pure as it can get, the whole way, and he stepped up onto that cross. So as this verse stated, it was a daily occurrence back in the Levitical system, and with the king of kings, his death was once and for all, Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. He did it for everybody. The last verse here, Hebrews 7.28. For the law maketh men, men high priests, which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. So note that there was not one place to sit down in the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle, and even in the temple, there was no chair. There was nowhere to sit. The priest had to be continually standing and working all the time. The table of showbread, the menorah, the, or not menorah, the seven-branch candlestick, the menorah has to do with the the restitution of the temple later on. But they never sat down. They could never rest at their work because they had to do it continually. Now, there was the mercy seat, which was the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. So there was one chair, but it's in the Holy of Holies, and there's only one that could sit on it, and that's Jesus. He had to walk in, and he took his seat there on the seat of mercy. And remember, part of the sacrificial system, the had to drop some of that blood at the feet of the mercy seat. And when, he, when Jesus died and he took down at the right hand of the Father at the mercy seat, that blood was just poured out all over everyone forever on the earth. So there was no place for the priest to sit because they had to continually work. And Jesus, however, is sitting at the right hand of the Father. His sacrifice is finished. He's not working on that anymore. Okay, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, this kind of hits home one of these concepts. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For, one, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That word's very intentional from the, the Bible, sanctification. That's the process you're on once you are justified in Jesus. Now, he's sitting, he's set down until his enemies be made his footstool. Now, that happens couple different places, but at, the, at Armageddon, Harmageddon, Mount Megiddo, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, when Jesus rides in on that white horse and we're with him and all of his enemies are just wiped off the face of the earth and he ushers in the kingdom where he sits on the throne, it probably will be the actual mercy seat that Moses had. Brought to him by the Ethiopians. We looked at that in Isaiah and a couple other spots, but he's going to sit there, and then there's some enemies again, though, during the millennium. Remember, at the end of the millennium, they surround Jerusalem again and try to wipe him out again. It's a battle for the kingdom, just like we said at the beginning. The first quote chronologically in the Bible is a battle for the kingdom. The whole Bible is him trying to get this kingdom 
and to set up a righteous king. So a king is waiting for you to call on him as your high priest to give you victory in this life and power over sin that you do not have to be entangled any longer. And he's waiting for that. He's sitting there waiting to make intercession for you. And once you do that, you have a, a place with a righteous king in the coming kingdom. He's got, he will have roles for you. He's going to have a job for you. He's going to have responsibilities for you. There's going to be cities to re- be rebuilt. We looked at Ezekiel 16 in Bible study a couple weeks ago, and there's a prophecy contained in Ezekiel 16 that the city of Sodom will be rebuilt in the millennium. Someone's going to have the, the opportunity and the job to go rebuild that city to bring it to its former glory, God says. Sodom used to be a righteous city before it turned, and the Lord's going to restore it. That is really cool when you, when you pull out treasures like this. But the reign of a righteous king, I read Psalm 72 this week, and this is incredible. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people, and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. This is all about Jesus in the millennium. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. Can you go to the next slide, Kelly? He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish an abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion. Okay, dominion is linked to a king. Kings have dominion. So Jesus is going to have dominion over the earth once again. He doesn't have that right now. And we learn that in the New Testament that Satan has dominion over this earth right now. He is the prince of this world. But our king is going to take it back. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth that they dwell in the wilderness. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The the kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. That's what we just talked about. The kings of Sheba and the king of Seba shall offer gifts. Now Tarshish in the Old Testament, it's, a, a, it's known as a place of ten. And a lot of people think that Tarshish is Britain. So that's where Britain got its name, Britannica, Britannica uh, a place of ten. That's where the, that name comes from. So a lot of people think Tarshish is speaking of Britain. And then when you get to Ezekiel 38 and 39, the young lions of Tarshish was probably speaking of all the nations that were birthed out of Britain. So think about South, North and South America and the United States, Canada, all these different lands that came out of that. But the people of the isles, so the people off of the continent of Europe and Asia, will bring gifts to Jesus in the millennium. That is so cool. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper He shall spare the poor and needy and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence and precious 
shall their blood be in his sight. And he shall live, and to him shall be given the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. There shall be an handful of corn in the earth. Upon the top of the mountains, the fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. You know, there is a kingdom to be set up. There's a king coming that will take care of the poor and the needy. He'll impute righteousness and a righteous reign on the earth. And like we talked about last time, righteousness must dwell at the king level before peace comes in. There will never be peace, total, complete peace on the earth until Jesus rules and reigns. And that's something that we all need to understand that there's a, you have a spot with that righteous king in the kingdom. You've got a spot and he's got something for you. So what is that going to be like? Man, you can't even imagine it. But between now and then, there are a lot of things to do for the Lord and to get serious about his business and his calling before he calls us home. And so we've got to be in the word of God. We've got to be building our faith so that we can have victory through our high priest in this world, in this life right now. While you're in this body, this temporal body of mortal flesh, you're going to put on immortality at some point. And you're gonna walk into that heaven of heavens that's higher than the heavens that you see at night. And you're gonna walk into a place of complete rest and peace for all eternity. And there's gonna be a, a mission for you and the king is going to set up a kingdom and he's got a place and a role for you and he wants to set you up with the prince of princes. So what is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1. 1. So Jesus is that substance of all that we hope for and there's a lot of evidence of things you don't see right now, which is the throne room of the universe where he's sitting and waiting to call you home. You know, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And the last person that accepts Jesus that he knows is going to get into that ark to be a part of the church, to close out the church age, that's Romans eleven twenty five, for when the blindness in part will fall off Israel, when the fullness of the Gentiles become in, the fullness of the church. And so if you are, if you know a friend, if you're here today, if you know someone that needs to get saved, they could be the last person. So show some urgency, <laughs> get, them, get them born again so we can all go home. But why is faith important? Hebrews eleven six. for without faith, it is impossible to please him. So it's impossible to please God without faith. And you can only get it through Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And you've got to do it every day from Acts seventeen eleven, And run that you may obtain from 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 25. So if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, if you're watching this, 
today or sometime later and you don't know Jesus as your savior, as your high priest, as your Messiah, as the one that paid everything on your behalf, then don't leave here today without getting born again. Don't turn off this video without being born again. It's very simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is that simple. You don't have to go by works. You don't have to try to justify yourself. There's one that justifies you on behalf of what he did almost 2,000 years ago now. You know, that time, our time on this earth is growing short. And there's a lot of evidence biblically that there's, there was probably about a 6,000 year lease that God gave Adam on the earth after he fell. And we're quickly approaching that 6,000 years. And a lot, of the, a lot of the old people in the Bible or the, the Israelites before Jesus, uh, namely the Essenes, uh, they viewed the Bible as having seven 1,000-year periods and 6,000 that were for men, for man to rule, and then 1,000 years of a righteous king ruling in the millennium. And that 6,000 years is almost up. So if you're not saved, nobody's setting dates here, but it's just interesting biblically when you study that, how that, that theme is kind of throughout the Bible. But you need to do that soon. You've got to, don't leave here without being born again. Because what happens then is Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And that's what your Jesus will do for you. Because whether you know him or not, he is your Jesus. He's your king, just like Hebrews 2.9. He tasted death for every man. That's everyone. So he is your Messiah. The key is, do you let him appropriate to your life what he did for you almost 2,000 years ago? So if you need anything, there's our email address newcitychurch.love at gmail.com. Reach out to us. We are happy to help. We're happy to provide encouragement. If you have a physical need, if you have kids that need prayer, if you need prayer, we've got a prayer team here at the church now praying over these requests. If you need something, send it in. So with that, I'll close this out in prayer. Lord, I just thank you so much that you are our surety. You are the surety to fulfill the obligation of a debt that none of us could pay. And you paid it on our behalf. You stamped that receipt paid in full. You left a receipt in the tomb with that shroud and the napkin that you folded that promised us because of where you set that napkin, you promised us even through that subtlety in the culture at that time that that meant you were coming back, that you were returning to that house. And Lord, need a word out of your scriptures poured into their lives, God. And Lord, I thank you that as we build our faith through studying your word from Psalms 40, verse seven, that in the volume of the book, it's written of me, you declared King Jesus. So every word on it as we study, even Leviticus, it speaks of you. And we thank you for that promise as we get to study your entire counsel of your word, as we use it to have victory in this life as we go and continue through this sanctification process. Grab a hold of us and give us fresh revelation this week and a call 
of how we can better and more appropriately serve you in the days and the weeks ahead, Lord. Thank you for this family here. And we are just giving you all of the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.